Welcome back, everybody. We're so glad that you're coming back to listen to our stories. This is the sixth episode of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. Once again, we have Chuck, yours truly, Joe Serino, and also Scott Lewis. We hope you enjoy today's show. Uh, Chuck, what is the title of this one? On the Smell of Things. On the Smell of Things. Very interesting. Well, without any further ado, here's Chuck Stead. So when Heebie-Jeebie was in the house and the telephone rang, he would yell, Don't answer that thing! I I don't want to know anything about it! Don't answer that thing! He didn't care for the phone. When we first got our phone, your your Uncle Mao would would go out someplace, and then he'd set a radio on to a foreign station, and and then he would call me up. And I'd answer the phone, and all I'd hear is some, some French guy jabbering away. It's a language I don't know. I would shout at him, I can't know your language. Why can't you talk in English? And then a commercial jingle would come on, and I'd get wise to your Uncle Mal's foolery. That's what the phone was in our family. I could see that Grandpa didn't care much for television either. But if there was a ball game on, he loved it. And then when the commercials came on, he talked back to them. I don't need your damn soap, mister. What the hell do I want with that? Go on. I I don't care if my shirts never get white. I don't like white shirts. When I sat on his lap and he told me stories, he didn't care for interruptions. Shouting from the kitchen, Tessie would scold him for the stories that he told me, saying I was too young for such things. Pop, don't tell a little boy such things. Woman, I got to tell him this now. I'll be dead later. Pop's dead. You will live forever. No, sir. No, I don't intend to live forever. That'd be an awful curse. Ye gods, living forever. No, sir. Then he would say to me, I knew a fellow who lived to be 103 years old. And when folks would ask him what he wanted for his birthday, he would say to be buried. Tessie didn't like this kind of talk. Her own dad, my other grandpa, had died before I was born, and she still missed him. She complained to my dad that Pop Stead talked to me about things I couldn't understand. And, well, that was true. I didn't know much about dying, and for that matter, I didn't know much about anything he talked about. There was one story about a fight that he got into with a guy named Ike. He told me that story a dozen times, but I could never figure out why they fought to begin with. It really didn't matter. Understanding wasn't as important as just being there. I loved him because he was always there. And because his voice was warm and friendly, and, well, also for the chocolate bars. Once in the summer, he complained to my mom that I was sweating. Woman, get this child a fan. He's covered in sweat. What the hell? Get him a fan and, and put it in his room. But Tessie told him fans were too dangerous for children. So he went down to a place called the American Brake Shoe. That was a factory in Mawa, New Jersey. And he brought back an electric fan for me. He wanted this to be a surprise. So he brought it over when we were all out one day, the whole family, except he was there. It must have taken him hours, but he installed the big fan and then waited for our return. Down the street we came, Walt driving the family car with Tessie sitting up front and us kids all in the back. It had been one of those long Sunday afternoons in which each of us returned with a different version of what a visit to Tessie's relatives in Jersey was all about. Tessie's version was the happiest. She never liked living in Hilburn for real. She so enjoyed a visit to a place where her family was from. She called Norwood, New Jersey, home. And she called Hilburn, well, 
Hilburn. And the place that we lived in was, well, a house. Upon our return, as we pulled into the driveway, Walt stopped the Plymouth and stared quietly at a heap of house pieces that were laying on the driveway before us. Tessie's neck stiffened, her head drawing back upon her shoulders. My sister Terry stuck her head out the side window, looked up and shouted, Fan! There was a great giant fan blade attached to the side of the house at the place where my room was. It looked like a propeller of an aeroplane. I was thrilled. I believed that we now lived in an aeroplane house. We piled into the house and we all went upstairs. And there in my little room we found Grandpop's dead, standing proudly alongside his four-foot-by-four-foot fan mounted in a gaping hole that looked out into Second Street. Popstead relit his cigar, leaned back against the wall, smiled upon the huge, dirty blades of his industrial fan. I thought of him there, dressed in his baggy pants and burgundy suspenders, as some sort of ancient pilot. He puffed on that rancid little weedy piece of a cigar, and he nodded to us with a knowing, friendly grin. Tessie was furious. The fan occupied a huge hole in the side of the house. We all stood dumbfounded by its presence. Old Pop smiled. An ashen-gray cinder blew off the top of his cigar and drifted into the fan blade, where it scattered to dust. Walt asked him, where did he get it? Old Pop, the heebie-jeebie man, told us that it was from the American Brake Shoe paint shop that it was a drying fan or a cooling fan or some such thing, none of which mattered to me. As far as I was concerned, it was a propeller, and heebie-jeebie man was the pilot, and we could now fly to the places of his stories. Then taking his stogie with his three-fingered hand, he reached over and snapped on a toggle with the other hand. The blade spun, the fan shook, the house rattled, the motor thundered, and there was not a hint of breeze coming forth. It was an exhaust fan. This meant that instead of blowing in, it sucked out. Sister Terry, she had a little tissue in her hand, and it was sucked immediately into the fan and chopped into a million pieces. We could feel the draw upon us. Tessie held me back. Unnoticed until then, until it was too late, an antique comforter slipped off my bed and was sucked into a thousand pieces that blew out across Second Street. They didn't let me keep the fan. Heebie-jeebie tried to argue for it. Mm, No. He said all we had to do was turn it around, but no. Tessie said if we turned it around and then turned it on, it would probably blow the house down. Tessie looked at us and said, It's the thought that counts, okay? Can't cool off with thoughts, Popstead grumbled. He got me a couple of Japanese paper fans at the Woolworths in the Village of Suffering, but after I tried to eat them, he gave up and let me sweat. Look here, boy. Sweating is okay to do. It's it's just a natural thing for a body to do, you know? It, it isn't just about keeping cool, though. Uh, a, a lot of this is about pouring out your stink. Now, you see a man working out in the sun all day. You smell him. He comes home, but you smell him before he even gets home. See, now, that's the way it's been all through ancient times. Uh, w- women smell and men smell. That's the way it's been. But then the Egyptians, they come along and they start stinking up their bodies with oils and perfumes and the like. Can't say that I blame them, though, seeing as how they was living out in a desert and all. They must have smelled the high heavens. But down through the ages, this, you know, smelly water stuff, it got out of hand. You see, it used to be that the only folks who thought a lot about themselves enough to stink up their bodies with an odor that don't really come from themselves was the rich folks. 
And that didn't matter to the rest of us, you see, because such folks, the rich ones, we don't really care about, and we don't care if they thin out. What I mean to say is your own natural smell is what keeps you having the babies. Tessie charged in. Pop, don't you start telling him about having babies. Now, woman, I've been wrapped up in making babies more times than you ever been. I know how it's done, and you can keep it to yourself. She stood there before him in her black jeans, silk blouse, hair tied back in a red bandana, arms crossed tight across her chest, legs squared off. She was ready for a fight. He shrugged. It would seem he had just given in. All I mean to say is that you do better having babies if you smell like you're supposed to and not like something out of a bottle. He looked at her and waited. She nodded and turned and walked thoughtfully back to her kitchen. He continued. Now the hunters and the trappers and the Indian folk, they know all about this. They know to knock off their own good smell if it's sneaking up on an animal that they want to do. They, they know an animal scent is its calling card. The, the Indian folks, now, they learn to smell much like an animal just to fool it. But fooling things with smells don't always work out so good. Now, you, you take them ladies that shove up in their sweaty armpits all matter of stinking grease just so they don't smell like themselves. Well, if smelling has anything to do with attracting a mate, then, then when are all them ladies going to be stinking alike like this? It's going to confuse the poor little mate that comes along. In the woods now, when a boy fox is looking for a girl fox, he only wants to smell one particular animal, not a whole bunch of hungry female foxes stinking like the same nasty grease, waiting to get their paws on him. Pop! Tessie rang out as she came out from the kitchen. Keep to the hunting stories. He doesn't need to know about making babies. Heebie-jeebie sucked up on his reserve. His breast pocket was stained from melted chocolate that had been forgotten and now resided in the folded cotton pattern of his chest. I dropped my head against that chest and inhaled the intoxicating stench of sweet and chocolate and sweat. He wiped sweat off the beard atop my head because Tessie had taken recently to shaving the top of my head and in a vain effort to decrease its apparent size. He continued, Everything in nature works on the smell of things. But the way animals use smelling is, is more so than a person does. The deer can smell you out, but, but they can also smell out whether or not you plan on killing them or not. Yeah, they can know that. Uh, this is what Indian folks know about. So, so from them, it's more than just learning to smell like a deer. They go off and they ask the animals to let them do a little killing so they can eat, you know. If they want to trap a little beaver, they, they go to the beaver council because, you know, they want to talk to them and ask for a little help. If they want to hunt up some deer, they, they go talk to white deer and, and tell them that they need a little meat to keep right on going. And, and, and if, if they want to hunt buffalo, they might even dress up in a buffalo skin and dance around and talk with the buffalo people. And, and this kind of animal talking even goes to the water and to the sky and to the corn and to the rocks. Everything to the Indian has got a thinking and talking self. All of them stories that come out of this talking helps the Indian people to get along. Not like us. Oh, no. Our big chief storyteller is the damn television. And, and what does the television help us to do? What do we learn from that poor little beaver kid in his suburban neighborhood? Or, or we sit and we laugh at Uncle Milty in the Jack Benny program, but how does that help us to get along with things? He fell quiet. He stared into the top of my head. His breathing had increased with the pace of his attitude. 
Now he drew himself up, caught his breath, pulled on a few sucking sounds, and stared at me. You're a funny-looking thing. If you don't grow into that head of yours, don't know what will become of you. I knew a fellow who had a head the size of a basketball. It was round like a ball, too. He needed to strap a hat on just to keep it from blowing off his round head because nothing fit on it. He worked down at the works, and some of the other fellows down there, they'd ride him about his big round head. One day he was just eating a sandwich, and this big buck comes up to him and says he wants to borrow his head for a basketball game. Well, that done it. Old Roundhead, he just tore into that buck, and they thrashed around for a while, knocking a quick out of each other. But Big Roundhead, he finished him off by clobbering the buck with his head. He fell quiet. For a few moments, he worked at his gums with his tongue. He said, Now take that story. What's the point of telling a story like that? I mean, if we was Injuns, I would tell you that's why we are called the tribe of Roundheads. But we just don't have that sort of thing in, in our way of being, do we? I don't know what it's all about sometimes. And now a brief pause for a message from our favorite sponsor, Montgomery Book Exchange. You know, our kids have grown up in a very different world when it comes to reading. I mean, they, they primarily work off a device where they can scan all the great literature. But for me, the tactile experience of holding a book in your hand creates a personal space between you and the story you're reading. Yeah, there's nothing like a good old rabbit-eared paperback. Sure, sure. And, and, and when the book is 50 or 100 years old and you hold it in your hands, the history of that story is right there. I mean, you're touching it. Mm. Last week, I was at the Montgomery Book Exchange, and I heard this local woman tell her friend, this place is full of stories. That's what a bookstore is all about, but a used bookstore even more so. So when you're ready to part with some books, you can bring them to the Montgomery Book Exchange? Oh, yeah. But you know, you might get yourself a cup of coffee at the Iron Cafe next door and start to browse and likely use your store credit to bring home a treasure. From the Montgomery Book Exchange, family-owned used bookstore right here in the historic Hudson Valley. Open 10 to 4, Tuesday through Thursday, Friday 10 to 6, Saturday 10 to 4, and Sunday 12 to 4. Check them out at MontgomeryBookExchange.com. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love the, the relationship this grandfather has with you. I just think it's really so uh, productive and generative of this whole, you know, your ability to tell stories the way you do. It's, you can't repay him for that. What a gift. You're, you're right. I guess I just carry it, you know. I guess it's, it's just there. Yeah, it's uh, it there was a big like I said earlier, like I said last week, there was a big hole in my life when he passed. I guess so. And right? uh, and I mean, in some way, I kept him around because I I I was four. I couldn't accept that he was gone. So in some way, I just kept him around. You still do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of immortalized how, him. This is how people never die. You tell the stories, and they're really there. Yeah, they sure are. And this is such a funny story, too. I mean, I'm trying not to, yeah. to laugh into the microphone while you're recording your story. <laughs> there are so many great moments throughout this that are, it's just hilarious. And I'm wondering if you, was that, um, 
was that environment kind of lost on you in the moment when you were young, or did you appreciate the um, the the sitcomity of it? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I I don't think it was lost, but I don't think I appreciated it the way I do now. Mm. You know, I I uh, it was it was the only thing I knew. So I, I I think I just thought this is how it works, and uh, and then over the years, and then of course, like I said earlier, Walt and Tessie would talk about Pop after he was gone, and I'd start to piece together these real differences that were real conflicts going on between uh, between old Pop and Tessie. Yeah, but it's so much fun. She she looks at the fan as as the this is going to blow up the house. <laughs> The house is going to come apart. The roof is going to blow off, and Chuck will be lost in the dust there somewhere. And your father says, "Where did you get it?" <laughs> Just the idea that the family went away to do something, and in the time they went away and came back, he's cut a hole in the side of the house, installed this industrial. First, he had to go get it. So I don't know where they went. <laughs> that he had this kind of time. He was one guy working alone. <laughs> Very industrious. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And I can just see the tissue from Terry going <laughs> through the fan and blowing out into the street. It's just great. And that comforter was a Grandma Stead comforter. That was oh, a, okay. a, a made thing. Because she was still around. She could make another one. But I don't know if she would bother making another one, knowing that he's going to just chop them up in a fan someday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I love the, the way he... Uh, the, the cigar to him was like what the pipe was to your dad. Yeah. It was almost like mm. a moderator. Yep. You know, it kind of broke the spell and separated chapters of, or moments in, in a life. The thing, I, I got to go back to Tessie, though, and your uh, grandfather for a second. You know, all the Kylie girls, and they got this from their mother, our grandmother, she was a formidable woman, you know, really a, a, a no-nonsense Formidable, loving, warm, great, but boy, don't cross Agatha Kylie. Mm -hmm. And by God, don't ever cross one of her daughters. And they all inherited that that mm -hmm. from her. They were mm -hmm. all assertive women, formidable women. You know, they they did not uh, they didn't back away quietly and just well whatever you say. That never happened. You know, mm -hmm. and that you know I think it really came down to. The generation of, uh, you know, my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, through from grandma, through my mother, and certainly, you know, Muffin and Joan, you mm -hmm. know, were both of them formidable, and Terry too, mm -hmm. formidable women, you know. Uh, it is, it's, there's so much to admire, you know. Mm. They're whole human beings as opposed to shadows of someone. And, uh, you know, we can, we can thank, you know, good old Grandma Kylie for that too. Mm -hmm. You know, I always wondered: Did Grandma Kylie ever meet Pop's dad? Yes, yes, and and uh, also uh, uh, Grandma's dad. You know, they all met, and there's actually apparently a photograph when Tessie got married of the four grandparents all together. You know, at that on that day, uh, taken down at the Norwood house. Uh, I haven't seen that, but I've been told there's a, a photograph of them all together. They were um, they were of the same generation, but very different. Yeah. And I think the core difference is the Kylies had a very strong sense of uh, Catholic uh, faith, and 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 were very strongly influenced by by religion, uh, yeah. both both as a, a sense of spirituality, but also a sense of dogma, the structure of religion. 
and and the steads not so at all mm-hmm. um so it would be easier for the steads like walt like my dad to be influenced by uh native animism and to allow that into his life which later in the storyline becomes one of the bones of contention between Tess and Walt because, you know, he, he gets baptized and becomes Catholic to marry her. And he dutifully goes to church every Sunday morning at the 7.30 Mass, but he doesn't take it in to the degree that he would push something else out. Something else was there before, and it gets to stay there. And, and periodically she bumps into it. She finds it. And uh, and it it sh- it doesn't shatter her, but it shakes her up to know that it's still there, and uh, and that also emerges in their play with each other, their dynamic. How did they meet? Uh, that's kind of interesting because uh, Walt was dating my aunt Mary, uh, Aunt Mary Ellen. I don't know if you know this, Joe. Walt was dating Mary before he dated Tessie. In fact, he went roller skating with all the girls before he roller skated with Tessie. Tessie was in the in the wings. And, uh, and she, uh, she told me this year, she'd hate that I'm going to say this out loud. She said she wanted some dental work done before she got a shot at Walt. (laughs) 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 But the time came when it was going to be her turn. Walt didn't know this. Just before that time, uh, Walt was with Mary and Tessie was with Doc visiting Perkins uh, Drive, the the tower at Perkins Drive in Harriman. So Doc, who eventually became Mary's husband. Was with Tessie. Interesting. And Mary was with Walt. It was just on a date. Like in those days, you go on dates, and it was hold hands, and that was it. There was no other expectation. You know, it was just what they were doing. And it was before World War II. It was in the, in the late 30s, and, um, or in the 30s, because they courted for a long time, too. So it'd be about mid-30s. And they're just hanging out together. And uh, both Kylie girls were looking at, the partners of the other girl. You know, they were both looking at the, the other men. <laughs> but it took them a while to, to get around to that. But Tessie often reminisced about that time at uh, Perkins Drive and that damn stinking tower. There were so many stairs. In it. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. But they were, and apparently somewhere in, in, in the Kylie archive, there's a photograph of the four of them at that thing, which would be cool to see, you know, yeah. four of them at that. And uh, Walt was a good dancer. As was Doc, actually, Doc Elling. They were both good dancers, so they went on dancing dates and roller skating dates and things that in our lives we could never imagine them yeah. doing, but they did all of that. And eventually, uh, I think, personally, I think Tessie was drawn to the, um, the earthy, sta- stable quality that the Steads seemed to have up in Hilburn. It was a kind of like, you're, you're well-grounded. And I think she was drawn to that. But... Um, but she missed Norwood terribly, mm. you know, and and she really did always refer to Norwood as home. So, what was the tipping point though that that got Tessie with Walt and and uh, Mary with Doc? What? Well, she had, she got a, she had to have dental work done. Oh, okay. <laughs> Apparently, it was okay to date Doc with bad teeth. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but no, she had to have some kind of dental work done, and 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 she was um, always attracted to Walt. When I asked him. Was he always attracted to Tessie? And he said, well, yeah, when she let me know. You know uh-huh. So, so uh-huh. in other words, that means until she let me know she was attracted to me, you know, one Kylie girl was like another. He was very indifferent. Yeah. I always wonder, like, know. what what was the negotiation that went on in the Kylie house that, yes. you know, because it's very, that's very dangerous. I know from my own yes. experience, 
You don't date somebody that your brother dated or, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, according to Aunt Joan, uh, remember we used to call Aunt Joan Big Joan? Yep. Yeah. Yep. According to Aunt Joan, there came the time when Walt called down to the Kylie house because he wanted to go over to the Montvale rolling rink and he wanted to, you know, who's, who's ready to go roller skating? And the call came in and Joan said, she called out, it's Walter Stead and he wants to know who wants to go skating tonight. And according to her, all the girls were sworn by that time to say they were busy. And a couple of them weren't, but they were all told to say they were busy. And Joan even implied a couple of them didn't want to say they were busy. You know, they, they, Walt's fun. But they were all sworn to say they were busy. And then Joan got to say, well, Walter, uh, we're all busy, except I think Tessie is free. And, of course, she's <laughs> sitting right by the phone. And I said, so how did that happen when you got on the phone with him? And she said, Oh, I got on the phone and said, well, I don't know. I, I guess I could. I, I guess it would be all right if you picked me up. And, of course, that's what she wanted all along. Uh -huh. The that's little cat great. and mouse that they played in those yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. Doc and Walt were great athletes. Yeah. I, Walt, yeah. uh, I'm learning more and more about, but I know Doc actually was a boxer, and they had these tournaments at the church where some bruiser would come into town and, you know, if you could lick them or if you could stay standing, you'd end up getting half the money they collected from all the people around the ring. And uh, the story goes that uh, Doc didn't want to do this. And he just, no, no, I, I, I don't believe in this. You know, I don't want to get in there. And they kept pushing him because everybody knew he was, he was, uh, he could really handle himself. So he finally puts on the gloves and he, he gets in the ring and, and this, this bruiser who's been, going from town to town to town, knocking everybody down, you know, steps right up to him. And he said, my father said, it was almost as if he was like trying to whack something out of the way. But just one swing, boom, and the bruiser falls, you know, <laughs> down. And, and Doc starts to apologize and everything, and the, she, the, the room is cheering, everybody's going crazy, you know. Look what he did, you know, one swing, and he knocked him out, boom, just like that, you know. And then apparently they all went out on the winnings of that night or something like well, that. Well, that that was pretty common. Walt also uh, got in the amateur ring a lot. Oh yeah, and uh, and uh, Uncle Mal got somebody who was a, a well-known uh, former prize fighter. Now, a, a, like you say, a bruiser traveling town to town visiting yep. the ring, and they set up a ring in the field that uh, Snow's property in Hilburn, and uh, they roped it off, and they wanted Walt to get in and dance in the ring with him. And so they had two people before him, and Walt watched him, and he saw the guy leaned a little too hard to the left, so he figured out his strategy watching this. And he gets in the ring, and the guy comes right up to him, and it was lights out. Yeah. He knocked Walt flat on his back. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He finished yeah. him off before Walt could even strategize. And I said, do you think, you, looking back, do you think you could have taken him? And he said, no, no. And I said, because he was better than you? And he said, because he wanted it more. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, they, they, yeah. you know, he made a living that way, Yeah. yeah. You know, going from town to town. Yeah. You know, so that's some, great about Doc yeah, hearing that yeah, story. Yeah, wow, was, wow. You got a kick out of that. Well, sir. Uh, Scott, uh, again, uh, it's great having you here. It's great to be here. And, uh, it's a you're, privilege. You're invited back anytime we make these uh, podcasts. Oh, fantastic. You, you have a good voice on the mic. You sound good. <laughs> yeah. And, and your music, uh, music is great, and we love having it as a, a theme score for this program. Thank you. I'm honored. And, you know, uh, just one thing. I, I've known you... What, back to the early days of the camp, right? Yeah. The Nature Place Camp. And right, 1986. 1986. And, and how old were you then? I was 18. 
18 and you were a counselor. You came in I as was, a counselor? I came in as a, a photographer. Oh, as a photographer. Mm-hmm. That's right. In the beginning. Yeah, you came very in as a beginning. photographer. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a wonderful uh, work that you did for all those years at Nature Place. And, of course, we were there together for more than three decades. Mm-hmm. And um, and wh- one of the great things that I appreciated about your work, and this is before I got to know you as a musician, but as a, as a photographer, is y- you would go out with a bunch of us, and I'd have my... I don't know, 30 kids or so that I'm dealing with in counselors and I'm telling a story somewhere. And Scott, you know, we'd be out in the woods or something. He would literally disappear even <laughs> though he was still there because um, we saw the pictures later. So right. we, <laughs> we, had, we had proof. <laughs> but that was, that was the mark of an artist. He just got, he just became fluid and he just moved around and captured wonderful images. And of course, the Nature Place did uh, slideshows at the end of every season. Right. And those were your pictures. They were, yes. Yeah. And some yeah. of them were just beautiful art. You know, that wasn't just a document. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I want to see some of those pictures one yeah. of these days. If Another, you can. There's yeah. there's one formidable picture you took of me. <laughs> <laughs> you got to see that sometime. <laughs> that sounds interesting. I I hear a story there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, yeah, that's, there is. That's another story. That's a story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys. We'll see everybody out there next week. And thank you so much. Keep on coming back. Do you want to hear the title of our next story? Yeah. Just as a teaser? Sure. Uh, The next story is simply called Second Street. Second Street. And it's a life study of Second Street. Okay. Looking forward to it. Okie doke. Thanks, Chuck. Yep. Bye-bye. been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>